Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 572 for the 17th of December, 2017. This week, rental software, whether delivered as software as a service or on a subscription basis, offers advantages for those who want their applications to be updated continuously. Not everybody likes the idea, though. There are some alternatives. In short circuits, the Federal Communications Commission has voted to end net neutrality, even though more than 75% of voters oppose the move. One final possibility exists to keep the policies in place. NATO is discussing the threat of cyber attacks and is planning its own cyber warfare strategy. Adobe released numerous updates this week, including some powerful new or improved features for Lightroom and Camera Raw. In spare parts, only on the website, a Bluetooth device claims to work with all digital assistants, except Cortana. Central New Mexico Community College has started issuing digital diplomas, and a company that provides services to jails and prisons says that music and other streaming media might reduce violence among prisoners. Software as a service and software subscriptions are the licensing methods that are increasingly preferred by companies. They offer advantages for users and developers, but some users are vehemently opposed to either concept. If you're in that group, there may be some viable alternatives for you. The term software as a service is generally used to describe software that is cloud-based, but sometimes it does apply to computer-based applications that carry subscription fees. Most of the Adobe applications, for example, are subscription-based, and most do run on the user's computer. The Internet is required only for occasional license verification. These applications and Microsoft Office 365 are more accurately described as subscription-based software. Chromebooks, on the other hand, use online resources for most of their applications. For this article, let's just consider both to be rental software and avoid the differences between the delivery methods. Previously, applications were licensed on a perpetual basis so that users could purchase a license for a program, install it, and then continue using it without additional charge. With a perpetual license, users normally received free updates for the life of the version. That is, if you licensed Foonblatt 2.3, it would include updates to Foonblatt 2.4, Foonblatt 2.5, and Foonblatt 2.6, as far as the version 2 went, but the user would need to pay an upgrade fee to obtain Foonblatt 3.0. The user who was satisfied with Foonblatt 2.6 could continue to use it even after the developer released the new versions. In the perpetual license method, developers provide new features every 18 months to two years, typically. With rental software, new features are released whenever they're deemed ready for use. Adobe frequently shows sneak peeks to show features that are in development, and subscribers have access to the new features without having to wait for months. And that's an advantage for both the users and the developers. 
users because they can start using the new features sooner, and developers because they receive more timely feedback from users. Software developers know that a lot of users want new features, which is why they continue to add new features. Obviously, though, these new features can't be created without developers, and software developers seem to want to be paid. Many years ago, WordPerfect offered support forever without a fee. As the user base grew, so did the cost of support, and eventually WordPerfect collapsed and was acquired by Corel. The WordPerfect Office Suite, now offered by Corel, uses a perpetual model, but it also includes an effort to have users sign up for a subscription. Rental software is often the best choice for large and medium-sized companies, but smaller organizations and individuals can find the monthly fees to be annoying. In general, the monthly rental fee usually turns out to be less than or equal to the cost of updates every year and a half to two years. Now that assumes that the user will obtain every update, and users of major applications have found that they could purchase every other update, versions 3, 5, 7, and 9, for example, instead of buying every update. Now, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. If you prefer the rental option, that's great because we're going to see more of that every year. If you detest the rental option, well, finding alternatives might be a little bit challenging. And there is this caution. Open-source applications and alternative commercial applications almost always omit some of the features that are present in the top-flight commercial applications. After all, there are reasons why the top commercial programs are the top commercial programs. In addition to having more robust feature sets, these are the applications that are best known and usually have more complete documentation and support. But let's take a look at some of the alternatives that are out there. Let's start with Microsoft Office 365. If you're willing to pay for a set of applications, WordPerfect Office from Corel would be a good choice. WordPerfect still has a substantial foothold in law offices, and it is not yet fully a rental application. WPS Office. That's available as a rental program, but there is also a free version that includes a word processor, a spreadsheet, and presentation applications. It displays ads, and if you want them to go away, you will need to choose one of the rental plans. The annual rental, though, is $30, and it runs on three computers and six mobile devices for that cost. Google Docs could be a good choice. Some versions are free. Others have a minimal fee of $5 to $25 a year. The applications, including Docs, Sheets, and Slides, can be accessed on any device that has a browser. Then there's Apache OpenOffice and LibreOffice. These are similar. Both originated in code from Star Office, a German program that Sun Microsystems acquired in 1999. Sun was taken over by Oracle, and Star Office was spun off as the open-source OpenOffice. Problems with Oracle led developers to create the Document Foundation, and then they created a fork of OpenOffice code to create LibreOffice. OpenOffice is now part of Apache. There are more similarities than differences between the two, but LibreOffice supports embedded fonts, so the text will display properly even if a typeface isn't available on the destination computer. LibreOffice also supports writing Office Open XML format files. OpenOffice can read these Microsoft format files, but it can't write them. How about backup programs? Well, there are alternatives to programs like Acronis True Image. True Image now has two versions. 
One includes cloud-based storage. The other backs up only to local drives. Among the competitors are cloud-based applications and applications that can use external USB drives, a friend's computer, or DVDs. Now, I'm a fan of using both an online service such as CrashPlan for Small Business and local backups using a program like GoodSync. In recent years, several free backup applications have been released, some with paid versions that offer additional features. Among these are Komodo Backup, Aomi Backupper Standard, Eases To-Do Backup, and Cobian Backup. Some offer disk imaging, others do only file and folder backup, and some do both. And by the way, you'll find links to all of the programs I'm mentioning today on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. One of the biggest players in rental software these days is Adobe. Adobe has a huge variety of applications, from photos to video to website design to audio. And there are some alternatives to many of their applications. Let's start with Lightroom and Photoshop. Companies such as On One and Alien Skin that I've mentioned in the past couple of weeks that previously created plugins for Photoshop have added standalone capabilities. These allow them to be used to manage photographs and to make the kind of modifications that are handled by Adobe Camera Raw and Lightroom. Those applications do use perpetual license. There's also an open source application called Raw Therapy that's worth taking a look at. And there are others, for example, Affinity Photo, Zara Photo and Graphic Designer, and the GNU Image Manipulator Program, or GIMP. They are primarily competitors for Photoshop. GIMP is an open source application. Zara Designer Pro is a better choice for those who also need an application that can be used for design work, publishing, and website development. Alternatives to Adobe Illustrator? Well, you've got Affinity Designer, Zara Designer Pro, and Inkscape. They're all alternatives. Inkscape is an open source application. The others are commercial applications. There are few alternatives to Adobe InDesign. In fact, I found only one. Scribus, which is currently being reworked as Affinity Publisher, is about the only serious alternative to Adobe InDesign. No further development is anticipated for Scribus, but the code is being rewritten as Affinity Publisher. It'll be part of the Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer suite of applications. A beta release had been planned for 2017, but now Scribus simply says that it'll be ready whenever it's ready, whenever that is. There are two open-source video editors that might be able to take the place of Premiere Pro. They are Shotcut and Lightworks. As with many, but not all, of the open-source applications, these two have versions for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. Those who do website design find Adobe Dreamweaver to be one of the top applications, but there are others. In addition to commercial applications such as Zara Designer Pro, and online website building services such as Wix, Web.com, and SiteBuilder, there are some open-source website applications such as Aptana and Bluefish, and the low-cost commercial Coffee Cup HTML editor. And there isn't much in the way of competition for Adobe Audition. Again, only one viable alternative exists for this one. The open-source Audacity comes with a useful online manual, but it does need a variety of plugins. They're also open source if you want it to be a usable editor. So although the future looks like it's going to be rental software, there are still some alternatives.
In short circuits, is this the end for net neutrality? On Thursday, the Federal Communications Commission acted against the wishes of most Americans to repeal the net neutrality rule. More than 80% of voters oppose the Federal Communications Commission vote, and there's very little difference of opinion between Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. According to a poll by the University of Maryland's Program for Public Consultation, 75% of Republicans, 89% of Democrats, and 86% of Independents support net neutrality. Internet service providers are currently required to provide customers access to all websites on the Internet without giving any websites faster or slower download speeds. The ISPs are not allowed to charge websites for faster download speeds or to charge customers a fee to visit specific websites. Eliminating the net neutrality rule eliminates all of those protections. State attorneys general from California, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Iowa, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington have all already announced plans to sue. Also, the Federal Congressional Review Act, or CRA, gives Congress the ability to nullify actions by agencies such as the FCC, after all, the FCC is a regulatory agency that was set up by Congress. Given the fact that a majority of voters support net neutrality, you might think this outcome would be automatic. Don't count on it, though. Dollars from lobbyists speak a lot louder than votes from constituents, and the big ISPs make huge contributions to nearly every member of Congress and Senator. If you support net neutrality, and most people say they do, now might be a very good time to write letters to your elected officials. Sometimes enough pressure from voters beats cash from lobbyists. The so-called Islamic State, which we call ISIS, ISIL, or DASH, D-A-E-S-H, take your pick, has been pretty successful in using the Internet to create followers and to debase the religion they claim to support. The organization is also attempting to create havoc on the Internet. NATO has other ideas. Here's a little aside first. Let's consider ISIS, ISIL, and DASH. IS, ISIS, and ISIL are the most commonly used terms for the Islamic State. But DASH is an alternative. It's an acronym for the Arabic phrase al-Dawala, al-Islamia, al-Iraq, al-Sham, or the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. The leaders of the Islamic State don't like the term Daesh because it sounds like two other Arabic words, D-A-E-S, one who crushes something underfoot, and Daesh, one who sows discord. Both of those are accurate descriptions of the Islamic State, but its leaders don't like it being described that way. In noting the Obama administration's work to counter the Islamic State's social media presence, the Council on Foreign Relations said that the U.S. government and companies can counter the Islamic State's online onslaught through policies anchored in important liberal principles, namely protection of free speech, transparency, and accountability. The Council on Foreign Relations also noted the Islamic State is more strategic online, that it demonstrates greater social media sophistication, and operates in cyberspace on a larger scale and intensity than previous terrorist groups. 
Its online propaganda is linked with radicalized individuals traveling to fight in Syria and Iraq and committing lone wolf terrorism in the West. Cyber threats also come from Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. All of this has caused NATO to think more about weapons that can be used on the Internet. Defense ministers from NATO countries have approved a command structure that includes a new cyber operations center. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the cyber weapon tactics would be preferred to physical and military threats and that these might be the best option for security. Citing efforts to fight ISIS, Stoltenberg says that NATO's goal is to use minimum force for maximum effect. Given those objectives, he said cyber effects might be the best response. Following the 2016 NATO summit in Warsaw, Stoltenberg says the organization began looking more seriously at cyber options. NATO will work with member countries' national governments to integrate cyber into existing military operations. Member nations will maintain ownership and control of their own cyber weapons, and Stoltenberg says that integrating capabilities from many nations into NATO missions strengthens NATO capabilities. The future. Looks like a nice place to visit, but I'm not sure I want to live there. Earlier in the podcast, I listed various applications that can be used in place of rental software such as Microsoft Office and Adobe Creative Cloud. At the time, I mentioned one of the advantages of rental software is immediate updates. And as if on cue, this week Adobe updated several applications, and those updates serve to illustrate the advantages. Two versions of Lightroom exist now. There is Lightroom CC and Lightroom Classic CC. I haven't yet been able to make the cloud-based Lightroom CC my friend, even though it supports both desktop and portable applications on Windows, Mac OS, iOS, and Android systems. For me, the classic version is still the better choice, and that's because all files are stored locally. Adobe's Sherrod Mangalik, who is a senior product manager on the digital imaging team, says the entire Lightroom CC ecosystem, including for Mac, Windows, iOS, Android, and the web, have been updated. This includes updates to Lightroom Classic CC and Adobe Camera Raw. There's also support for new cameras and lenses and some additional new features. You might wonder about updates for new cameras and why that's important. Well, it's critical if you shoot raw images. Adobe created and released publicly the DNG format, digital negative. Most camera manufacturers, though, still continue to release cameras that create raw images in a format that is known only to the manufacturer. Files from a Nikon D200 won't match those from a Nikon D850. Files from a Canon 60D won't match those from a Canon SX530. So it's essential that the application you use with raw images is able to work with the files from your camera. If you shoot only JPEG images, that's not important. JPEG is a very standard format. But those who shoot RAW need to have an application that can understand the files created by their cameras. Adobe Camera RAW, and therefore Adobe Lightroom, support hundreds of RAW formats from dozens of camera manufacturers. Adobe is usually quicker to add new formats than are other vendors. Adobe also supports a thousand or more lenses. This is important when it comes to correcting problems that exist primarily with zoom lenses. 
For Lightroom, the most important improvement, I think, involves the Lightroom auto-corrections. In previous versions, the auto-corrections really weren't very good. Even so, many people who taught Adobe applications suggested using the auto option as a starting point. Results were always too bright and too contrasty for me. Now they are much better. Not perfect, perhaps, but then should we ever really expect perfection from an automatic system? In any event, they're much closer to where I'd want the final image to be. Mangalik also notes improvements in Lightroom's tone curve functionality. The tone curve is one of the most popular tools used by photographers for advanced control over tonality, contrast, and color balance of an image, he says. You can use either the parametric curve or the point curve modes to tune the tonality and the contrast of your image, and the red, green, and blue modes to adjust the color balance and stylize the image. The changes are important for Photoshop users, too, and that's because they affect Adobe Camera Raw. Lightroom is, in fact, actually Adobe Camera Raw with a different interface and a file management system, so any change made to Adobe Camera Raw also affects Lightroom. Lightroom has two versions, Lightroom CC and Lightroom Classic CC. The Classic version stores images on the user's computer, while the new version stores all images in the cloud and makes cross-platform editing possible. Lightroom Classic CC updates include a refinement to the color range masking tool and the ability to more easily remove individual sample points, as well as support for tethered capture with the Nikon D850 camera. Several significant improvements have been made to Lightroom CC on various platforms. Lightroom CC on the desktop adds a tone curve control, split toning, and the ability to change the image's recorded capture time and a full screen view. These duplicate features that existed already on Lightroom Classic. Lightroom CC on Android now has shortcuts, more control for managing storage, and several bug fixes and speed improvements. Lightroom CC on iOS adds watermarking on export, improved quality for HDR captures, bug fixes, and, yes, some speed improvements. The Creative Cloud app should remind you that the updates are available. And I'll remind you that Spare Parts is available only on the website. This week, a Bluetooth device claims to work with all digital assistants except Cortana. Central New Mexico Community College has started issuing digital diplomas. And a company that provides services to jails and prisons says that music and other streaming media might reduce violence among prisoners. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.